a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Welcome to the Menopause and Cancer podcast, where we speak with cancer survivors, patients and medical professionals to help us find solutions to our symptoms and ideas to improve our health. My name is Danny Binnington, and today we're going to have a myth-busting session with an oncologist. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Eleonora Teplinski back onto the Menopause and Cancer podcast for a second time. She's a board-certified oncologist from America, and she is an oracle of all things supplement, mental health, sexual health, and she will bust some myths with us. I'm so excited she's back, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Eleonora, thank you for joining us. Second time on the Menopause and Cancer podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me back. And I'm thrilled to be here. Let's bust some myths again. On a recent post on your fabulously informative Instagram, I saw that you also picked up on the study that more and more younger people are getting diagnosed with cancer, in particular breast cancer. Now, this will also mean as an oncologist, you will put more and more people into early menopause. And we know how difficult that is. And it's going to be tricky. Can you talk us through of the study? Is it true that more and more young people get diagnosed with cancer? What's the deal? Yeah, so we are seeing there's a couple of recent studies showing that people younger than 50 are getting diagnosed with cancer at higher rates. So the most recent study showed the number of diagnoses, now, not just for breast cancer, we're talking for all cancer, in adults younger than 50 went from... Uh, went up by about 79% from 1990 through 2019. Now, this it's important to know that this does not cover the pandemic. This does not cover the time where people were not going for cancer screenings. And so we don't have the repercussions of that at this point. Uh, and so, you know, really kind of highlights that cancer screening is important, number one. Um, we don't know why we're seeing younger and younger cancer. You know, there's some thought that maybe lifestyle, maybe environment, you know, there's a lot of risk factors that uh, keep coming out. There was a recent one talking about air quality and worsening air quality and pollution increases risk. But the problem with risk factors, and I think this is an important point to make, is that risk factors do not imply causality. So for example, we know that alcohol increases risk for breast cancer. We also know people who drink and never get diagnosed and people who don't drink and get diagnosed with breast cancer. So it's not this, you know, if A, then B relationship. If you drink, it does not mean you will get diagnosed with cancer. And so one of the things that's really challenging, I think, for, for everyone to kind of understand is, well, why why is it a risk factor for some, you know, and why does it not increase risk for others? So, or why does it not turn into a cancer diagnosis? So there's still a lot of work and research to be done, but what we all can do uh, to reduce our risk, again, not just for breast cancer, but for any cancer is exercise, um, you know, trying to maintain a healthy diet that includes limiting processed foods, processed meat, red meat, eating more whole foods, um, eating more plants, and limiting alcohol use. Uh, and then, you know, those are three three things, exercise, diet, and alcohol that we can do, not to mention smoking cessation. I think sometimes we don't talk enough about that um, to reduce our risk. And it's not a guarantee, but it's something that we do have some control over. 
Yeah. And I suppose when younger women are treated for cancer, that will also mean more younger women are going to be pushed into a surgically or medically onset menopause, or perhaps um, they will embark on long-term cancer treatment. As an oncologist, you know how difficult that is for so many young women. Do you think there is anything out there where medical professionals or experts are talking about how we can then help us improve our quality of life? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would caution against saying increased diagnoses equal more menopause, because I, I don't think we remember not all cancer diagnoses um, put people into menopause a lot. And so that's part of it. It really depends on the nuances. And I don't think in those studies, we have the data on exactly which cancer types and which subtypes we're seeing. Right. So I, I would be a little hesitant about putting, um, making that kind of more of a blanket statement. But I do agree that we are increasing the use of ovarian suppression in our young women where we weren't doing that years ago because we know that can, in certain cases, reduce risk of breast cancer recurrence. Um, some of the treatments put people into menopause and some people are able to re, uh, regain ovarian function and others are not. Um, and so I think that there is a push. There are some new drugs um, that like, well, we, could, we, we could talk about for hot flashes, for example. So there are ways um, that we can try to improve someone's quality of life. You know, one of the things that has been very popular lately on internet and social media is kind of a resurgence in hormone replacement therapy. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of controversial thoughts on this, um, but you know, because that helps obviously manage menopausal side effects. But for patients or women with hormone receptor positive breast cancer, uh, in general, hormone replacement therapy is a contraindication. Now, you may have a doctor that says, yes, it's safe to do. And, and for that, I would, you know, that's an individual uh, decision. But in general, you know, oncologists do not feel comfortable prescribing hormone replacement therapy for hormone receptor positive breast cancer. We have a little bit more leeway with triple negative or, you know, hormone receptor negative or two positive. Um, but I, I do think that there's a lot more happening. A lot more people are talking about quality of life, which is really important. Yeah. And it's kind of like the whole reason why I set up the podcast, because so many women said, well, I'm now surviving and I'm a few years on and I was told I can't have HRT, but no one told me that I had any other options. And then women had all of these questions about what about collagen? What about mushrooms? What about all of this? And they don't have access to their medical team and they often don't have oncologists and you can't have all of the answers to all of these things we want to do, right? And so there's this kind of like gap, this void. And I was always hoping that our episodes will fill a lot of that void. And so I'm um, so grateful you're here because I know you are filling a void for many people at home. How do you navigate the medical system in the US? Because you just brought up the UK and in the UK, women often feel they don't have access to their oncologist enough. They don't get to ask the, the questions that are really important when it comes to managing menopause. And often we feel we shouldn't really talk about our dry vaginas or the fact that we're really low in mood because it's not life-threatening anymore. And we feel a bit like we don't want to be a nuisance. How do you access good care in, in the US? Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. 73% of people who listen to my podcast haven't yet clicked the follow button on their podcast player. I want these conversations to reach as many women as possible who might need it. So if you've ever enjoyed this podcast, please hit the follow button now. 
So, I mean, I think kind of the same thing that happens in the UK happens here, okay. to be completely honest. Okay. But um, my my take on it is, you know, I, I, I understand that your oncologist is not going to help you with every single side effect because they're not experts in that. So um, I think the really the kind of key questions I always tell people is you want to ask your oncologist is, you know, these are things I how do I reach you if I have additional questions? Or can I set up an appointment? You know, if you have an appointment and today you're talking, let's say, about, you know, side effects of your tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, but you didn't get to touch on vaginal dryness or sexual health in general or mental health and you want to come back in, you know, I think just being, you know, we can't do everything in one visit. Visits are short. Unfortunately, um, we don't have, you know, an hour to spend with people and that's a little bit out of our control as oncologists. But I think you can ask, like, how do I, can I send you a message on the portal? Can I make another appointment? Do you have a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant that you work with? Um, and then recognizing too that part of survivorship and managing those menopausal side effects is going to be bringing other people in. So that's going to be a gynecologist. That may be physical therapy. If you're experiencing a lot of your urovaginal issues, that may be a urologist. So recognizing that one person is not a therapist for mental health. I mean, I can go on and on, but recognizing mm-hmm. that one person is not going to be able to help you with with everything. Um, but it's hard. I, I don't have a great answer. And I agree with you that the issues you guys face in the UK, we're, we're having them very much here as well. Right. Yeah. And actually what you're describing is a very big team, isn't it? We yeah, often think mm-hmm. our oncologist has to do everything for us. Yeah. But all of the professions you just have described is quite a big team of experts that we can sort of assemble around us that can help us at various stages, I guess, um, through and beyond a diagnosis and moving forward. I think you need some sort of quarterback for your team. You know, you need someone who's kind of help you figure out who you need to see and your oncologist can play a big role in that. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about breast cancer recurrence, because I feel so many women are worried to talk about it. It's our biggest fear. It's the one thing that everyone is so just we need to look away. Often women don't even want to know about the symptoms of secondary cancer or breast cancer because we're so worried it might happen to us. Is it true that with early stage breast cancer, for example, 30 percent of cancers reoccur, even though you put people on all of these amazing treatments that you've got, like endocrine therapies and all of that. You know, it's a it's a great question. So this statistic has is very very old, and yet it just keeps coming back. Um, but it's old. It doesn't it doesn't include any new data, uh, any new treatments. It doesn't include new drugs. So I, it is outdated. It is not one that we quote to people. Um, and you know, when you say 30%, like, even if you follow the old statistics and, you know, 30% of people may recur, well, that doesn't tell you for an individual person, what does that tell you, right? It's more important for the the woman, the man, the person with breast cancer to sit with their oncologist and say, what is my, to the best that you can estimate, you know, what is my risk of recurrence? And I think, um, you know, we can't, pre- I mean, you, you know, sometimes you have an idea that if you have oncotype that can help you, but a lot of times you can't really predict and, you know, you can't say, well, it's 20 versus 23, right? Like what is, what does that necessarily mean? So I like to think of it more in terms of low risk of recurrence, intermediate risk or high risk kind of, you know, putting you, because ultimately if someone recurs, well, it's a hundred percent for them. Um, exactly. And, 
you can follow data. So let's say you have a new study that says, okay, well, anyone who received this medication, you know, only 10% of people recurred, right? Compared to people who didn't get that medication. Great. So we have this. But then a new drug comes out and now you're adding that drug to this drug and you have, right, like it's all, like it's hard to make sense of all the data because it's all kind of coming at the same time and at different times. So I think my best, it's not 30%. That is outdated. For some people, it's going to be a lot lower than that. Unfortunately, for some people, it is going to be a bit higher than that. But that depends on individual tumor and cancer characteristics, your tumor size, lymph node involvement, how many lymph nodes, grade, uh, the type of treatment that you received, your estrogen receptor status, your progesterone receptor status, your HER2 status, lifestyle factors that play a role. So it's, you know, I think saying, oh, 30% of cancers recur is is really not taking in these personalized things. Yeah. And I'm so glad you explained that because we have messages every week of, of women saying, oh, I have to be on this, uh, say, long-term treatment because otherwise I've got a chance of a recurrence for up to 30%. And often when people then go back to their oncologist and question that, they realize that actually they've heard that somewhere and it's a, a statement that actually never even applied to them. And so it's really important to to keep talking about it. Can we talk about fasting for a little bit, please? Because there is so much information about fasting out there. There's when people fast during chemotherapy, when people fast after a cancer diagnosis, does it help us to reduce our risks of recurrence or what does it help us with? Because there are some people who say it doesn't actually help with much apart from insulin or, you know, do you have all these big players talking about fasting? What does it mean yeah. for us when you've had cancer? So, you know, I'll be honest, the data for fasting in breast cancer is not actually, um, it, it's not actually very strong and there's not a lot of data. Um, a lot of this is based on kind of one study and, um, you know, I, I think we don't have enough data to recommend fasting for the sole purpose of reducing recurrence risk. Um, so it's not something I say to my, you know, when I talk to patients, I tell them, okay, I want you to, you know, limit your alcohol use and limit this and this. Um, I don't say you also should be fasting because we just don't have the data to support that. With that said, um, certainly if someone wants to fast, um, there's no, you know, talk to your doctor, but that's an option. And I think it has other benefits besides reducing risk for recurrence. You know, it can help in some people, not for everyone, but it can help with weight in some people. Matters what you eat in that eating period. It can help with insulin resistance. It can help, you know, there's a lot of different things that it can help with. So I do think it's an option, but it's not one of those definitive things that says like you, you know, you should be fasting to reduce your risk for recurrence. We don't recommend it solely for that purpose. Um, I personally am not... I big believer of fasting during chemotherapy. Again, we don't have a lot of data to support this. And I will say the people that I know who have tried it really have a lot of side effects. You know, we know that a lot of nausea from chemotherapy comes when you don't eat. Um, and, and so it's, you know, people haven't really had a good time tolerating it. But I will recognize that for some people, it certainly is a good option. And that's something you should talk to your doctor about if you're interested in doing. 
I mean, it's fascinating because there are some big people on social media, for example, who tell you that if you fast for a certain amount of time, it kills all of your cancer cells. And of course, for someone that is already in this field and who've had a cancer diagnosis, this sounds promising, right? Wouldn't, you know, so many things we give a go, even if they're not based in evidence, but it can be scary when you're not knowing what you're doing. Yeah, and I think part of it too is with these studies, what's what's challenging is, um, you know, you don't know necessarily what treatment they were on or what else they were doing. You know, um, you kind of just know more general things. And uh, a lot of in the fasting studies, in a lot of nutrition and dietary studies in general, like it's really hard to track exactly what people eat. So people have to fill out kind of what are called 24-hour dietary recalls where you ask someone to recall, you know, what they ate and when they ate it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do think, I mean, in that one study, um, they showed that if you if you um, fasted for less than 13 hours, then you had a higher uh, risk of recurrence, but not of death from breast cancer. So, you know, again, that's something that's worth discussing. But I think what you talk about is, you know, people on social media saying kind of these big claims, right? And you know, there's something I talk about a lot, a lot is misinformation on the internet. And I think if something sounds too good to be true and your doctor hasn't mentioned it, like that's a red flag for me. And I would go to your doctor. I mean, I really want everyone to have a relationship with their oncologist where they feel comfortable saying, hey, I saw this on the internet. Like, what do you think? Um, and I really think this speaks to the importance of trusting your medical team. I think there's so much great information on social media, and I think it can be an adjunct to your care. But if you trust your medical team, and you know, I think that you want to, they should still be the center of it, right? You can get additional information on the internet and then bring it to your healthcare team and work together as a team to figure out if it's right for you. And when you're seeing these claims on social media, I think you have to ask, you know, who who is making these claims? Right. So hmm. number one is what what are their credentials? You know, is it a patient saying I fasted and my cancer didn't come back versus a medical professional saying everyone should fast and your cancer won't come back if you do? If they're very kind of grandiose statements, that's a red flag. You should be able to follow the data. So not only do you want to know who is this person, what are their credentials? They're calling themselves an expert. What does that mean? And then, well, if they're saying everyone should fast, they have a link to the study. They have a link to the publication. If they don't, well, where is that information coming from? Yeah, which is why it's so amazing that we can talk to you about all of these myths that are circulating out there in the ether. You know, a little bit, what's a little bit hard is when you say bring your, in, in, you know, your inquiries to your doctor, for example. I, in the past, have said, I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to stop drinking. And I was basically told, it doesn't really matter. Keep on eating whatever you're eating. And my diet was shockingly bad. And so I kind of walked away feeling quite disheartened because I wanted to do something for my health. And I believed that then, that was 10 years ago, I believed that going vegan and uh, cutting out alcohol was really important for me and my recovery. And I was sort of dismissed. And you hear it all the time from women saying their oncologist said, oh, just make sure you have good quality wine. And then the surgeon might say, oh, it's better to not drink. And so there's so many people with I, different yeah. opinions, isn't it? I mean, I think it's hard. I will say that what we did 10 years ago is not what we do now. So uh, I yeah. think that's really important because 10 years ago, 
we didn't really know a lot. I mean, I will be, I will tell you the same thing. I told people, I just eat whatever you feel, what you, you want to eat, right? And and now, oh my God, I can't believe I said that to people. But <laughs> my point is that, you know, medicine changes very rapidly. And, and that's why misinformation is very hard to tease out because there, things are changing all the time, right? So think about yeah. soy, soy and breast cancer. I think we touched on this last time, but Soy is a phytoestrogen. It's safe to eat in its minimally processed forms. Years ago, we were telling people, oh, my God, stay far away from soy. And now we're saying tofu is good for you and it's better not yeah. to your water. So I, I, I do think things change as new data comes out. Um, but I hear you. I hear if you're coming to your doctor with, you know, these are things I want to do to make my change my health or be better – and you're not getting the information that you need, I would ask, you know, I think partly is maybe they don't know. Um, you know, I would say, who who would be good for me to talk to about this? You know, do you have a nutritionist that you can recommend? You know, as people come to me, and we have a nutritionist that we work with, but people or dietitian, rather, people come to me and they'll ask me very specific questions about their fat or their protein or their carbohydrates. And that's out of my scope. I'm not a registered yeah. dietitian, but I will refer them to the person that knows. So I think that's kind of framing the question. You may not be the person to ask, but do you have an idea of who I can go to? I think that's a great idea. And it goes back to what you said earlier, that our cancer team is actually quite a big pool of people, isn't it? Um, What do you think about probiotics? Because when you're in the cancer community and we have thousands of women in our Facebook group, supplements often come up and the worry about supplements are always contraindications. Oh, I'm not sure I can take that because I'm on X drug or does it interfere mm-hmm. with chemotherapy? With probiotics, they seem to be very safe. So many people now talk about all your health starts in your gut, your immune system is in your gut. And so many women think that a probiotic could be a helpful supplement. What do you think about them? Yeah, so... I, I think I'm not I'm not going to answer specific questions about specific supplements because it's very individual. Um, we have to keep in mind that supplements in general are a not regulated field. Um, supplements are not approved by the FDA, and so you want to be careful because a lot of times they can interact with the medications that you're taking, um, and a lot of times they don't. And I think there are certain supplements, you know, for, that people should be taking. But I will say two things, and I'm not against them at all. Um, but people always come to me and they say, well, what, what supplements should breast cancer survivors take? And there is no one answer. Um, it's very different. It depends on what you're eating. If you're vegan, you, you need a B12 or a B complex, right? That, that's something that you may do. Um, if you're not vegan, you probably don't need that. If you're, you know, so I think it's really individual. Um, and supplements aren't magic. Uh, in some cases, they, we really need them. Vitamin D is one that we do recommend a lot. Um, but they're not in general going to take the place of exercise and healthy eating. And I think you want to ask, why am I taking the supplement? There's a lot of people taking supplements because they're fads. And my take on it always is, does it help you? Have you noticed a difference since you've started taking it? Yes. Great. Continue. If it doesn't help you, um, then don't take it just because, you know, everyone else is taking it. I, I agree with you that probiotics are probably the milder, you know, of some of these supplements. And again, I think we probably don't know as a lot about gut health. I think that's an area we need to learn more about. Um, but I think that that's, again, a milder one. But you have to talk to your doctor about, you know, the list and what you're taking and does it interfere and all of that. 
Yeah, thank you for clarifying. Um, in a lot of your posts, you say that sexual health and mental health are integrate really important parts of cancer care. Is that because it always comes up in practice, or how do you mean? Because, well, sexual health. I mean, is most people are sexual health is affected by cancer treatment, whether it's vaginal dryness. For people who've had cervical cancer, you could have and have had public um, or vaginal radiation. You can have a lot of stenosis um, or endometrial cancer also, but you can have a lot of stenosis and tightening. People need to use dilators. Sex can be very painful. There's something called, I'm sure you've talked about, the genitourinary symptoms of menopause. So it's more than just, you know, vaginal dryness. It's people who have um, a mastectomy, right? Different sensations in their breasts. And that may not, you know, if it was once kind of, you know, you know, it's something that they, you know, need that was part of sex for them, right? That may no longer be the case. They may have issues with body image. They may no longer feel, you know, sexy. And I mean, we this is stuff I hear about all the time, but I hear about it because I ask about it. Um, I think hmm. that's the key when you ask, you know, and I think a non-judgmental way to ask is, you know, many people, and I'll say this to patients, you know, many people struggle with sexual health. Is that something that, you know, you've been experiencing? Um, and when you ask people, you, you know, a lot of it, again, it's either vaginal dryness, it's libido, it's orgasm. I mean, I'll give you an example, mental health. So we also know mental health, you know, I mean, cancer is a life-changing diagnosis and many, many suffer from anxiety and depression and go on medications to help. And I, I think that is really important. Um, but a lot of those, the antidepressants can affect your orgasm and libido. Right. So now you're it's like it's it's a vicious cycle. Um, and I think those are big, there's just such big factors in quality of life for people. Um, but we don't talk about them. And for years no one talked about them because no, they weren't no one's people still are uncomfortable talking about sex. I mean, right, we we know this. And so I I think that the more we talk about it, the more we normalize these conversations. I hope that someone feels comfortable going to their oncologist and says, you know, I, I've been having vaginal dryness. What should I do? You know, or yeah. go to the gynecologist. Um, but these are big areas of health that are affected by cancer. And um, people kind of, and sometimes I will tell you, patients tell me they get dismissed. They tell me, oh, my doctor said, or someone told me you're lucky to be alive. So what do you care about this? And it just breaks your heart that people are getting told this. Yeah. And because you talk about sexual health a lot, obviously, as you said in your clinic, are you happy to prescribe women who've had a history of um, cancer vaginal estrogens? Is it very different um, to the UK or what's, yes, what do you what, do there? Yes, what we do, um, we do know that um, vaginal estrogens are not absorbed into the circulation. Again, you want to use a low dose. Um, our first, though, our go-to is starting with a non-hormonal vaginal estrogen. I mean, uh, sorry, non-hormonal vaginal moisturizer. There are several that we recommend along with the lubricant. And if people are using the vaginal moisturizer properly multiple times a week and they're still having dryness, then yes, we will go to a vaginal estrogen um, for people that are still, despite like they, you know, they know We've told them that estrogen, does, the vaginal estrogen does not get absorbed, but they're still nervous. There is another hormone, a vaginal hormone called DHEA that they could use, you know, if they're really still nervous about estrogen, but I do prescribe it um, or 
with here, we'll sometimes have the gynecologist or the urologist prescribe. It just depends on who they're seeing. Um, but we always do start with a non-hormonal first, and we have guidelines um, to support that data. Mm, interesting. It's always fascinating to hear how people do it differently across the country, isn't it? I'm Austrian yeah. and I spend um, some time in the summer back in Austria and a lot of my friends were talking about how they manage menopause, especially in Germany and Austria. And it's totally different to what happens in the UK, for example. And so it's it's fascinating how it all sort of happens differently. Can we talk about skin? And then I've got one last question before I can let you go. Um, in the summer, I was all over your um, Instagram and I was thinking, I need to figure out what sun sunscreen to use. I'm sure you've got a recommendation. And you actually had a post up about SPF and also mineral sunscreen. Can you explain that to everyone, please? Yes, absolutely. So um, sunscreen always, not just in the summer. So great way to bring it up now because we should be using sunscreen every day. Um, and even if you're not out in the sun, you know, I put it on my hands, face and neck every day because you're driving and you're, you know, even out for a few minutes. Um, in terms of the types of sunscreen, so, um, you know, there are different types of sunscreens. There's the chemical sunscreens and the mineral sunscreens. And, you know, the data for this is very kind of weak. I will say this, use the sunscreen, use sunscreen. So if the only one you want to use is a chemical sunscreen, by all means, go and use that one. But if you're open, um, you know, there is some data that some of the chemical sunscreens do get absorbed into the circulation. And chemicals are the ones that have like the avobenzone or endobenzone. Um, and so they can get absorbed into the circulation. You know, could they be carcinogenic? It's a lot of ifs. And in the studies where they showed that, you know, people used a lot of sunscreen. So the counter argument is that while most Americans or Europeans or whoever, you know, are not using sunscreen in that amount, in that large amount that okay. they use in the trial. So probably the chemical sunscreen that, that we're using is not enough to be absorbed. My take on it is I don't know that I want to take the chance when I have a less, I have a safer option available. That's just my personal take on it. So I do prefer the mineral sunscreens. Um, and my, what I always do is I always tell people, well, this is what I do. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to tell people, oh, you can use whatever sunscreen, but I'm only using a mineral one, you know? So that's kind yeah. of how I think about it. I personally use a mineral. I have my kids use mineral sunscreens. I feel a little bit more comfortable with that, but again, it's use sunscreen. And then if you're, you know, if you want to pick, my take on it would be to use the mineral based on the data that we have. And is the mineral sunscreen as sunscreen as effective as a one with SPF? Yes, yes. Those are they're yeah. been shown equally as effective. A lot of people don't like them because they like sometimes can leave like a white residue or they're like a little harder to like apply or penetrate the skin. Um, but there have also been a bunch more new sunscreens that have come out that are like easier to use that are mineral. Mm. Mm. Great. Thank you very much. And actually, I don't do my neck and I don't do my hands, but I don't know why. Isn't it funny? <laughs> like so hair. many people say, I I know. And my hands, like uh, that's where, you know, like I'm really paranoid about my hands because that's where you see like aging the fastest. Yeah, of course. Do anything about that. And there's nothing wrong with it, aging, but like, 
you know. Also, like, I, I don't want to get my on my hands or anywhere. <laughs> it's so funny how we are so random sometimes. I had a lady the other day and she said, you know, I just buy organic milk now. I don't know why she spoke about milk, but I just buy organic milk now. But I never buy organic cheese. I wonder why. And it's the same with me and the sunscreen. Yep. It's like, why do I put it on my face and not my hands? Anyway, another question mm -hmm. to ponder over. Um, well, actually, have before, you since we're talking mm -hmm. about hands, if you're getting your nails done and you're going to the nail salons, you know, they're using the UV lights. Like they now, I have gloves, like they sell gloves that you can put on that won't expose your hands if you're putting them in the UV machines for gel manicures. Oh my gosh. Okay. Fascinating. I am saving that money and I do my own nails. <laughs> Even better. Even better. Um, we had a professor on the podcast a few months ago, Professor Dillo, who worked as a researcher on Imperial College London on the new drug, which is meant to be a non-hormonal drug for hot flushes. Um, I think it's called Biosa or Vesolinitant um, in the UK by different, uh, a couple of different pharma companies. Does it exist in the, U in, in the US already? Yes, it does. Um, the challenge is it came out a few months ago. Um, and what it does, it's a non-hormonal option for hot flashes, so it's great. Um, and it works on the receptors in the brain that regulate body temperature, so it's a great, great option. Um, I have a few women who are on it, and they have had just tremendous results, um, really decrease in the amount of hot flashes. You do have to measure liver enzymes every three months on it, so that's just the caveat. Um, but, and I don't know what it's like... Um, overseas, but in the US, a lot of the insurance companies aren't covering it or huh. they're not, or they want people to try. It's funny because they want people to try other drugs for hot flashes, but there's no actually other drug for hot flashes. Like we use antidepressants, we use things like gabapentin, which have shown to be maybe some improvement in hot flashes, but they're not hot flash specific medications. Like Viosa is the first yeah. one, um, but they don't want to pay for it. So it's a very expensive copay. So that's kind of where we're navigating right now. You know, I had a pharma company or sorry, an insurance company tell me the other day, well, you, this patient that you prescribed Bioza can't get it because they had to have, you know, not um, responded to the other drugs, but the other drugs weren't, can't be right for them because they can impact their libido and they can cause weight gain. And like, why would I and those are concerns for that particular patient. So I think these are some of the challenges that we're up against. But I'm hoping that in the next few months, we'll see more utilization of this new medication. Yeah. And it's hopeful that for people with a history of cancer, you have also seen that it's yeah. really helpful. Yeah, exactly. But here's the challenge that they didn't study it in patients with cancer. Um, and I think hmm. partly, you know, those people who've had a history of cancer were excluded from the study. Um, and a lot of times they do this, they just, they want to keep the data kind of, you know, clean and like they don't want to have that as a confounding factor. Um, so I, I tell all my patients that, I tell them that it's non-hormonal, should not be an issue, but you know, full disclosure was not studied in people who've had cancer. Um, but, you know, and so I think if you have that conversation up front, it's not a contraindication. It's not like you can't take it. I think you just need to know, and it will say hot flashes are really debilitating. They really yeah. negatively impact someone's quality of life. Think about night sweats, waking up multiple times a night to change your clothes. If you're sleep deprived, you're cognitively impaired as a result of that. Um, it really 
impacts job performance. I mean, there's just so many things. So I think that this is a great option for people. And also, it's really hopeful that there is a drug um, that yep. can help with some of these debilitating symptoms, because it also means there's research that has been done, especially for women's health, which has been so neglected for so long anyway. And lastly, you are a superwoman and a marathon runner and such an athlete I always look up to. It's so inspiring because you're so consistent. And I watch you and I think, I need to get out there, but it's raining again. And then I watch you run <laughs> where I should be running myself. <laughs> <laughs> you're such a campaigner for exercise aren't you you're such yes, a believer I'm, that your lifestyle is big it's huge I mean I again I speak from experience right I know how I feel when I exercise I know how I feel when I don't exercise um we also know about all the health benefits that come with exercise and it's not just about cancer recurrence it's about diabetes and your heart health and cholesterol and blood pressure um it can reduce the risk of cognitive impairment and dementia in the future. I mean, there's just, you know, the, the list goes on and on. So again, I'm in the mindset of, I will, I don't ever recommend things to people that I don't do or wouldn't do. Um, and that's why sometimes, you know, I only have 10 minutes and I will share that I only ran for 10 minutes today because that's all I had time for, but I felt so much better after that 10 minutes. And so I think everyone can find five, 10 minutes in their day, maybe not every day, but maybe two to three times a week, I think we can scrape by 10 minutes. And what are you training for at the moment? Um, so right now I'm training for the New York City Marathon, which is the first weekend of November. And I am fundraising for the Pink Agenda, which is an, really an incredible organization. But what they do is they focus on breast cancer research, education, and empowerment in young adults. And that's huge because we started off talking about there is an increase in cancer in the young adult community. So they're doing all the money that's raised goes to researchers doing specific research in the young adult uh, population. Which is amazing. And I want, I'm going to put the link into the show notes. I want everyone to go into the show notes now and put loads of money onto your fundraising page as a huge yeah. thank you for giving us your time again to come onto the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm so glad that you send in so many of the messages. When you send in questions about sunscreen, about the latest studies, about stuff that you just don't get the answers anywhere else for. And I'm really glad that we're then able to find you the experts who can help you find the answers to your questions. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Go into the show notes. Let's all really just put a little bit of money towards Eleonora's fundraising page. I think she's doing an incredible job as a oncologist, but also sharing so much valuable information um, on social media and on our podcast today. Wishing you a good week. I can't believe we're well into the autumn and coming into the winter months. I can't believe how quickly the time goes. And it's an honor and a privilege to be here every single week with all of you. Until next week, and I hope you stay well. Mm -hmm.